This is the NC Everything Podcast, a show where we talk about everything that has anything to do with North Carolina. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 51. I'm your host, Curtis, and today we're going to cover tobacco. Now, I know that's a weird title, but uh, I'll tell you why I decided to cover tobacco in just a minute. First, I want to welcome back anybody who's coming back and welcome to the show any newcomers. I'm glad you have returned to listen to some more of my, my, I guess, history rants. And I'm glad you've discovered my show and decided to try it out. If you like the show, you can go to www.thencevertingpodcast.com and there, right on the home screen, you can listen to all my past episodes and you can do uh, all sorts of other stuff like hit the contact button and reach out and suggest episodes or just say hello. And speaking of that, Nick from Iredale County, your suggestion will be the next episode if everything goes right. I also have a, a three social media um, outlets or whatever you call them. I, I'm not big on social media. Um, as a matter of fact, I haven't really been very, very present on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But I plan on turning that around pretty soon. I want to try to get back into that. Um, I know some of you follow me on my social media. Um, and I will give you the screen names or uh, call signs or whatever for those at the end of the episode. However, I can tell you that on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, if you search the NC Everything Podcast, um, I'm surely going to come up. Now, this episode, uh, Tobacco, by the way, you're going to hear me say tobacco. That's just the way I talk. But uh, I am talking about the plant tobacco. I'm not going to um, uh, enunciate that every time. Anyway, I know it's a weird a weird episode to, to have. But two main things. One, tobacco was incredibly important in the development of uh, our country's economy, at least on the agricultural side. But two, I wanted to do the Durham Bulls. Now, Durham Bull is a tobacco company. And... When I started doing the research for the Durham Bulls, I, I had a section where I would explain uh, why the baseball team, which is the Durham Bulls, by the way, if you don't know, I, w- I had a section where I would explain why the Durham Bulls was named after a tobacco company, and then I decided just to do tobacco first, and that would be kind of the unofficial part one to, to the Durham Bulls baseball team, and maybe I just made that more complicated than it had to be, but I, I like the idea of doing tobacco first, and and uh, I will be doing Durham Bulls probably in the next um, couple, not the next episode, but maybe uh, the next episode after that, or maybe one more after that. Now, before we get into the tobacco episode, I want to let you know that this isn't a cigarette episode. However, cigarettes do come up for obvious reasons, but I'm not doing an episode on cigarettes, and I'm not promoting smoking in any way. Smoking is a, a very awful habit, and I'm not judging you if you smoke. I smoke. I was debating on uh, announcing that, but I, I am a smoker, and it is an awful habit that is incredibly hard to break. If you don't smoke, um, don't think about picking it up. If you are thinking about picking it up, think again. And if you do smoke, please do whatever you can to quit. I am currently uh, in between um, smoke sensation episodes. I really do want to quit. I've tried several times, and uh, I tried to quit smoking really recently, and I plan on trying again very, very soon. Anyway, I just want to let you know that this episode is not about cigarettes or chewing tobacco or snuff, though those things will come up. This episode is dedicated to 
the plant tobacco and tobacco growing and how the tobacco industry more or less built this country. All right, now that I got that bit of disclaimer out of the way, here we go. Now, experts, um, historians, scientists, um, and others, they know that tobacco was used for rituals and for medicine since about 800 BC. And it wasn't just one group of people. Um, a lot of people way back then were using the, this plant tobacco for, for rituals and medicine. Now, in 1492, Christopher Columbus, he saw uh, Native Americans using tobacco again for the rituals and the medicine. Now, it wasn't very long after this country started that tobacco, uh, it, like I said, it pretty much saved the country and it became our, our leading export very, very early on. You see, they had the Jamestown, Virginia colony. And I know a lot of you have seen Pocahontas and that's a Disney movie. In truth, the Jamestown colony was failing. It was failing so bad that they were starving to the point that they had to resort to cannibalism. And I know that sucks. I would love to say that Pocahontas married John Smith and he took her to England and they lived happy, happily ever after. But the truth is Pocahontas didn't just fall in love with John Smith. She was uh, kicked out of her village by her father and she was essentially homeless. And John Smith was eventually wounded and taken away from Jamestown. John Roth comes in. He marries Pocahontas, takes her back to England. She picks up some kind of virus or disease that she's not used to. And there, in Gravesend, United Kingdom, she dies. But that's not exactly what this podcast is about. But John Roth did play a key role in all this. Before he took Pocahontas back to England to meet death, he pretty much single-handedly saved Jamestown and European colonization of the New World. Because around 1612, like I said, Jamestown was struggling. They were trying to grow corn. Corn wouldn't grow. The natives didn't want to trade with them, so they were starving. They were in trouble. And then John Rolfe shows up, and instead of a, a bag full of corn seed, he has this tobacco seed that he picked up down in the West Indies. Now, as an added bonus, John Rolfe, John Rolfe also had uh, some, some knowledge in agricultural techniques. And so they planted the tobacco, and all of a sudden the natives were like, oh, shit, um... We can talk again if you want. We'll get some of that tobacco. And so they started trading with the natives again. And eventually they grew more and more of it. And they started trading with other colonies. And then they started sending it overseas to England. So the good news is that Jamestown and pretty much all, all the colonies were saved. And the bad news is that these huge tobacco farms called plantations went up. And though it was a whole lot of work, there was this thing called slavery. Now, they were sending indentured servants over from, from Europe. So you commit a crime, you go to the New World, and you work off your sentence. The problem was, all the rain and the cool weather in Europe, um, that's not the way it is over here in the South. So they were sending these criminals over, and with the heat and the humidity, these guys were passing out and dying. So they weren't working off their debt, and they were just having a bunch of bodies laying around. And so they needed somebody or some kind of person that was used to the heat. Well, down in the, in the Caribbean, they were using African slaves and these guys would work from sunup to sundown and, and never have a problem. And that's more or less, I mean, it's a broad stroke, but that's more or less how African slavery made its way into the American colonies. Now, a little while ago, I said that once they started growing tobacco in Jamestown, the Indians wanted to start trading with them. Well, they were already growing their own tobacco, but again, they had a uh, more of it to, I guess, trade with when, when Jamestown started, uh, growing their own. Same thing down in the Roanoke colony. Now, we all know about the lost colony of Roanoke. And if you don't, I'll probably cover it pretty soon. It's on my list. 
But down there in the Roanoke colony, they found that the Native Americans, they were raising tobacco too, and they call it they called it the holy herb. Now, the thing about this holy herb, you know, we have a stigma today, and I, I think we probably should. You know, you got to be um, 18 to smoke. I think it's 21 now, actually. Um, anyway, I'm too old to remember, but, um, you know, you have to be a certain age to smoke tobacco and all that. Well, that, that isn't how it works in the Native American tribes. Um, women and men of all ages smoke tobacco out of clay pipes because like I said, it was for medicinal and uh, ritualistic purposes. It wasn't, um, just to get high. Although I'm sure some of that, that native American tobacco probably, uh, puts you on a cloud. Well, eventually, um, in the North Carolina part, this native American tobacco started spreading around and they started growing it around the Albemarle Sound, the Roanoke river Valley, Eventually, Granville County and um, a lot of other counties border in Virginia. In fact, to this day, a lot of the border counties along the Virginia line still have humongous tobacco farms. Well, eventually, over 90% of the colonists here in the New World were involved in tobacco production in some way. And the tobacco industry just kept growing bigger in the 1700s and even bigger in the 1800s. By the middle of the 1800s, North Carolina was producing about 12 million pounds of tobacco a year. By 1860, we were growing 33 million pounds per year. Now, that's a, a pretty big jump over the course of about 10 years. Well, the reason that is, is because they discovered a new curing process and a new type of tobacco leaf. So for this part of the story, we're in Caswell County, and it's 1852. Now, before I get into this next part, I just want to put this out there. I grew up farming, but we grew cows and crops. I have zero experience in a tobacco field. I've seen acres and acres of tobacco and I have consumed, um, cigarettes, chewing tobacco and dip. But here's all I know about tobacco. You grow it, you cut it and hang it up until it turns brown and then you process it in whatever way you want to. And it becomes cigarettes, chewing tobacco and snuff or dip. If there are any tobacco farmers out there who would like to educate me, I will be glad to come out and interview you for a special episode on growing North Carolina tobacco, and that is a promise. But that is truly the extent of my knowledge in the tobacco growing and curing process. Now, back to the story. Caswell County, 1852. Actually, scratch that. Caswell County, 1839. This is a few years back. There was a, a slave named Stephen, and he accident, accidentally discovered a new way of curing tobacco. So they, they used to build a fire, uh, I guess, near or in the tobacco barn. I'm not sure about that. But a fire, the heat from the fire would cure the tobacco into this, this beautiful brown leaf that was eventually processed. Well, the slave, Stephen, he fell asleep while he was supposed to be monitoring the fire. So he wakes up, sees the fire is almost out, and he runs over to the charcoal pit and he grabs a couple charred logs and throws them on the, on the fire trying to get it going again. Well, I guess the fire didn't really get going again, but you still had the heat. And at the end of it all, he had 600 pounds of the brightest yellow tobacco you'd ever seen. And like I said, uh, cured tobacco is typically a dark brown, but this tobacco was bright yellow. Now, supposedly that's the story of how they got bright leaf tobacco. Uh, later, they discovered it was um, the, the actual soil was part of the factor. So it, it may be um, part of the curing process and, and part of the growing process. Well, that slave named Stephen eventually became Stephen Slade. Now we're in Caswell County, 1852. 
Abisha and Elijah Slade of Castle County. They perfected this, this curing process for making this bright yellow tobacco by using charcoal instead of wood for the fire. Also, you want to grow your tobacco on sandy soil. Now, I don't know where all tobacco is grown all over the country, but I can tell you that the tobacco farms around here are on, on these big sand flats. And it's just, it's just the way the sand, uh, the, the soil is. So if I go up north from, from my county, Orange County, um, Castle County has some sandy soil. Now we have red clay in Orange County. Um, but if I go south toward Pinehurst, again, they're called the sand hills. That's where tobacco, uh, tobacco farms start back up again. Cause it's real sandy down there. Now I've seen a little bit of tobacco growing pretty close to Orange County, but, um, but it's mostly red clay here. So we grow corn and soybeans in Orange County. Now before 1840 and more specifically before the civil war, I got a point to that. Um, there was tobacco grown in Granville, Person, Castle, Rockingham, Stokes, Burke, Iredale, Orange, and Rowan County. Now that's just to name a few. There was tobacco grown in a lot of places, but the civil war took place. Well, toward the end of the civil war, a lot of troops met in Durham. Now this was at a, a place called the Bennett farm specifically, but there were a lot of Confederate and union troops in Durham County because there was a, a huge surrender that took place there. Now I talk a little bit more about that in episode 12 on Hillsborough, but, um, I'm probably going to do a, a civil war dedicated episode eventually. And that's definitely going to come up again, but 1865 union and Confederate soldiers, there's a, a bunch of them all around Durham County. Well, it was when these soldiers came to Durham County that they discovered that bright leaf tobacco. You see, while these, these troops were waiting around for general Sherman and general Johnston to make their arrangements for surrender, well, they looted John R. Green's tobacco factory located in Durham. And here they found bull Durham smoking tobacco. And I'm going to get back to bull Durham in a minute, but they smoked this tobacco and they commented that it was some of the, the mildest and best tobacco that they ever had. Well, the war ended everybody went home, but then all these guys started writing Durham County, North Carolina again, and they wanted some more of this bright leaf tobacco. And that's when this tobacco, uh, quit being so locally isolated and it really started growing out, uh, around the country. Now, one particular family really took advantage of this new demand for the tobacco, and that was the Dukes. Now, that is Washington Duke and his sons, Benjamin, James, and Brody. They were really the, the first ones in the area to jump on the, the big tobacco bandwagon. You know, like I said, it was, it was growing out of the, the local spots into a, a nationwide thing, and the Dukes really got on, on top of that. Now, just a little side note here, Washington Duke's son, James B. Duke, well, he created the Duke Endowment, and this was a $40 million trust fund. Well, it was $40 million back then. In today's money, it'd be $430 million. Well, some of this trust fund money went to a college called Trinity College, and the president of Trinity College renamed the school Duke University as a memorial to Washington Duke and his family. So anytime you watch the Duke Blue Devils play basketball, well, that's tobacco, baby. Now, Washington Duke was a Confederate soldier, well, when the, when the war was over, he came back home and he started grinding his own tobacco and he sold the tobacco under the brand name Pro Bono Publico. Now, when I say they sold tobacco, this is what they call loose leaf tobacco. You can still buy it today. You can go to any tobacco store and you can buy a, what it looks like a freezer bag full of loose leaf tobacco. But in 1874, Duke and his son started making cigarettes. 
Now, around this time, cigarettes, they, they weren't very widespread. Um, people smoked tobacco out of pipes or they chewed it, you know. Um, but cigarettes were kind of a new thing and, and they were starting to grow. And, and kind of like with the whole tobacco boom, um, the Dukes, they jumped on cigarettes pretty early on in the game. Now, to start with, any cigarettes you sold, you had to roll, roll them by hand. And people were, were trying their, their luck at cigarette rolling machines. But there was a device that was invented by James A. Bonsack, who was from Virginia. And the machine he invented could make 120,000 cigarettes per day. Well, in 1884, Duke and the boys, they got one of these machines. Well, they started pumping out the cigarettes. And eventually, cigarettes started replacing cigars and chewing tobacco. Well, eventually, Washington Duke named his company American Tobacco. Well, it wasn't long before American Tobacco pretty much owned the market in cigarettes, smoking tobacco, which is that loose leaf stuff, and snuff. Wow, I think I just said snuff really, really weird. I had to go back and listen to that. Anyway, snuff, like uh, pack your lip. Anyway. Now, a problem came up because of the federal government's antitrust action. And this was against the American Tobacco, which was pretty much a corporate giant. And the, 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 the antitrust action was launched in 1907, and it ended in 1911. And the Supreme Court ordered the dissolution of American Tobacco. And what I gathered from that was it was such a big company. Um, monopolies are illegal. And so they made them you know, share the wealth, essentially. But anyway, American Tobacco was broke up into to other companies. This was... The, the new American Tobacco Company, Liggett Myers, P. Lorillard, Philip Morris, Brown and Williamson, and R.J. Reynolds. Now, around this time, um, Washington's son, James B. Duke, he got out of the tobacco business and started getting into hydroelectric power. Now, because of the demand of tobacco and uh, the ending of slavery, a lot of these tobacco fields, because tobacco took so much work and constant attention, it wasn't just one family um, kind of helping out with the tobacco field. Usually whole entire communities would get together and all work toward the same goal. Now I know that, uh, several of the tobacco farmers I, I know personally, uh, they would say that when it was time to harvest, you know, all the farmers in the community would come and help out and they'd make a day of it. And, you know, the wives would make sandwiches and I know that sounds sexist as hell, but my friend did say his wife would make sandwiches and, and food and bring it out to him. Um, now, I'm actually friends with a, a daughter of a tobacco farmer and she grew up, she was working out in tobacco field too. So maybe to backpedal on my wives make sandwiches comment, um, she was out in the fields. She wasn't making no damn sandwiches. Anyway, the great depression hit and of course it hit the farmers hard, including tobacco, but the government, they stepped in with the agricultural adjustment act of 1938. And what this act did, it established a system of, of production quotas for crops um, and several crops, but tobacco was one of them. And I didn't take a, a real deep dive into this, but pretty much the tobacco farmers were getting paid good money, even if they didn't make a whole lot of tobacco, or I'm sorry, even if they didn't sell a whole lot of tobacco, they were still making enough money to survive, if that makes any sense. But tobacco farmers, they made it through the depression. And after uh, the economy changed, changed tides again, again, tobacco started booming. In 1955, North Carolina produced 1 billion pounds of tobacco, and that's the largest amount ever produced in North Carolina. Now, you might think, well, it's 2021, and if we keep growing, we should be way past that by now. Well, eventually, tobacco starts taking some hits. And this really started in the 1950s. 
in the fifties is when health magazines started coming out and, and people were reading articles, you know, on the, the, the problems with smoking. Now there was also in 1957 congressional hearings on smoking and health and the U S surgeon general's report on smoking and health came out in 1964. So now tobacco wasn't quite as bright as it used to be. Well, then between 1975 and 1995, people really started suing the, the, the tobacco companies because of their, their health problems. Now, most of these lawsuits were, were quite unsuccessful. However, in 1994, the first class action suits were brought against tobacco companies. I read that 60 law firms in five states were suing tobacco companies. And what it boils down to is about 50 million ex-smokers and 40 million current smokers were claiming to be addicts or claiming they were suffering from ailments because they used tobacco. And most likely they were telling the truth. Well, all the tobacco companies were really standing their ground and kind of sticking together until 1996. And this is when the Liggett Group was sued and they agreed to settle instead of fight it. Also, as part of the settlement... Liggett agreed to finance an anti-smoking campaign and to not oppose new government regulations. They also agreed to pay damages, and this had never been done by a tobacco company before. Now, it wasn't long after this that two guys from Phil the Philip Morris Company, they confirmed that the tobacco companies had manipulated nicotine levels in order to keep smokers addicted to the cigarettes. So pretty much they're, they're putting shit in these things that they ain't telling people about. And so I'm not saying smoking was ever healthy, but smoking in the 1800s was a hell lot healthier before, um, you know, these asshats got in here and started pouring a lot more drugs into these cigarettes. Now this, I'm going to say this, but I, I'm just off the top of my head. I don't have any sources for this, but several years ago, I remember somebody told me, and if you guys want to look this up, you can, but they told me that like, uh, tobacco has like, Again, I don't know. Tobacco has like three chemicals in it, but a cigarette has like 150 or something. It was some crazy amount of shit they put in these cigarettes. In short, when you're smoking a cigarette, you're only smoking very, very little tobacco. Just kind of keep that in mind. All right. So after the, the Philip Morris guys came out and, and talked about uh, them manipulating cigarettes, there was another clash action suit, clash action suit. And this was 60,000 flight attendants who said they were forced to inhale secondhand smoke on airplanes. Then, in the mid-1990s, Florida, West Virginia, Minnesota, and Mississippi all filed suits. And these states were wanting reimbursement for the costs they incurred while treating smokers. Now, in November of 1998, there was a legal arrangement between four major U.S. cigarette companies and 46 states. And the, the result was an arrangement called the Master Settlement Agreement, or MSA. Now, what the MSA did was it forced companies to agree to pay all the states $206 billion over 25 years for compensation for Medicaid cost. Now, this money was called Phase 1, and it was the largest amount of MSA money to be paid to the states. Now, Phase 2 was a second fund that was worth $5.15 billion. And this money was going to be paid directly by the tobacco companies to the tobacco farmers and tobacco shareholders. Now, as for North Carolina, their share of the phase one payments was about $4.6 billion over 25 years. And their share of the, the phase two payments was just under $2 billion. Now, like I said, phase one was $4.6 billion over 25 years. Well, they had to distribute that money evenly. And to help out with this, 
they created three programs for this. The Gold Leaf Foundation that was created in 1999, it's a non-profit corporation that controls the distribution of 50% of the Phase 1 uh, money. The Health and Wellness Trust Fund received about 25% of the Phase 1 money. And then there's the, the Tobacco Trust Fund, and they also got about 25% of the Phase 1 money. Now, all three of these groups, their whole or sole purpose is pretty much to help tobacco farmers and growers and stockholders, but also to help people who um, have who are smoking or ex-smokers um, pretty much just get their life together. Now, part of the MSA agreement was that there was certain rules and marketing limits that tobacco companies had to abide by. Most notably, they had to stop marketing cigarettes to minors. Now, these big tobacco companies, they all bobbed their head and they said, okay, but in 2001, evidence arised that they, that they were still marketing on billboards to minors. And so the R.J. Reynolds Company, which makes Camel and Winston cigarettes, well, they got sued for breaching the agreement. Now, they, they stopped advertising on billboards, but they still have advertisements with uh, posters at, at retail stores. But with this, the demand for tobacco really started plummeting. Now, even with this decline in the demand for tobacco, in 2006, North Carolina was still one of the top tobacco-producing regions in the whole world. North Carolina has over 6,000 tobacco farms, and they were in, in 2006, they were still selling $620 million worth of tobacco every year. And it says that 50% of the, the tobacco consumed in the United States comes from North Carolina. Now, I will say, I see more and more people doing these, uh, these vape systems. I don't know about the health factors on that. I don't know anything about vape. I've never really vaped. But uh, I do think that the vaping is definitely putting, uh, putting a hurting on the, the cigarette industry anyway. Now, that's more or less the end of my history of tobacco segment. But I got two uh, sub-segments I want to talk about. And one of those that I mentioned earlier is Bull Derm Tobacco. Now, remember, I, I'm, I'm doing this because I eventually want to do an episode on the, the Durham Bulls. So let's talk about Bull Durham Tobacco. So I don't know if you remember, but when the, the Confederate Union soldiers raided the tobacco barn, uh, you know, and, and found Brightleaf Tobacco, that was the tobacco barn of John R. Green of Durham. Well, John R. Green of Durham, he did start his own tobacco company. The problem was he really didn't know what to name it. But he got inspired by a popular mustard that was made in Durham, England. And this mustard brand featured the head of a Durham bull on its label. So a bull from Durham, England was the, uh, the head of a bull from Durham, England was the label of this mustard. And so he kind of stole that logo. But instead of using the, the head of it, he decided to use the image of the, the entire bull on his, his label. And if you look at the show notes, I'll have a link to to a picture of the the bull Durham or Durham bull logo just uh click episodes and you know like I said you can listen to the podcast on the main screen but if you click episodes it'll show you the episode if you click that it'll take you to uh my it'll show you my sources and any links to pictures on the website anyway back to it so even if bull Durham tobacco wasn't the biggest tobacco company and it was very very big but even if it wasn't the biggest the logo was definitely the most popular well, in 1867, Green made William T. Blackwell his partner. And then two years later, in 1869, Green died. Well, Blackwell buys the entire business from the Green estate. Well, then Blackwell takes on partners James R. Day and Julian S. Carr. Well, they formed the William T. Blackwell Company, 
and together the three of those really made that company into a big business. Eventually, Bull Durham Tobacco was the probably the most popular American product in the 1800s. Well, then, in 1988, they made a movie with Kevin Costner, Susan Sarandon, and Tim Robbins called Bull Durham, and they filmed it right here in Durham, North Carolina. And that movie done two things. It brought a lot of attention to Bull Durham Tobacco and the Durham Bulls baseball team. Oh, I got some stuff out of my timeline here. Um, the movie came out in 1988, but let's step back to the, the World War II. I read that the U.S. government bought all of Bull Durham's tobacco to send overseas to the troops during World War II. And then there was the baseball side of it. Now, I'm not talking much about the Durham Bulls here. I'm talking about baseball in general. The Bull Durham Tobacco Company would find, find the biggest building in every town, and that's where they would put their Bull Durham sign. So when you ride into a town, a lot of times that was one of the first things you would see. Now, every town has a baseball field. Well, you could find a Bull Durham advertising sign on the outside of the fence of most baseball fields at the time. It was even said that a lot of times baseball players would use uh, the shadow. The sign would be on the fence and it would cast a shadow. And so the baseball players, because all the games were day games, they would stand in the shade created by the sign to cool off. Now, keep in mind, these signs are 25 feet tall and 40 feet long. Now, another thing about this, these signs, I, I guess you can call it cool. I, I thought it was cool. But the Bull Durham Company supposedly offered $50 to anybody who could hit the sign, any batter who could hit the sign with the ball. And if, supposedly, if you hit the ball out of any park that had a bull on the fence, you got a free carton of tobacco. It said that in, uh, the, in 1909, there was 50 signs in place around the, the country and 14 players won, won rewards. The following year, there was 150 Bull Durham signs, and it was hit 85 times. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is Brightleaf Square. Now, before I wrap up, a lot of you may be wondering why I didn't bring up R.J. Reynolds more than I did. Well, for one, Richard Joshua Reynolds is from Virginia, and I don't do Virginia. And second, the R.J. Reynolds Company is based out of Winston-Salem, but they're a cigarette company. And in this episode, even though I had to talk about cigarettes and smoking, it was geared more toward tobacco itself and not toward the history of cigarettes. So R.J. Reynolds really, in my opinion, doesn't offer a whole lot toward the tobacco industry. They're solely a cigarette business. Now anyway, Brightleaf Square. Brightleaf Square is an area in Durham right beside uh, the, or the, the Durham Bulls play in the Durham Bulls Athletic Park also known as the DBAP. Now, right behind there is Brightleaf Square. The reason I hesitate is because the DBAP may be part of Brightleaf Square. I'm not sure. But in this area, there used to be the warehouses for Watts and Uly Tobacco Company, and they were named for George Watts and Thomas B. Uly. Well, these warehouses are, or they were, humongous. They were built between 1900 and 1904. And they were built by the American Tobacco Company, remember um, Washington Duke's company? And they were built for storing cigarette tobacco. Well, when you looked uh, from a distance at Durham, um, I don't really, I don't think it matters where you were at. If you looked into Durham, you could see these two warehouses uh, standing there in the what they call the tobacco district. Well, remember, like I said, in 1911, the Supreme Court divided the American Tobacco Company into several smaller companies. Well, these warehouses, they had to be sold, and they changed hands a couple times. But in 1980, private developers bought the, bought the buildings. 
Now, these private developers, they were with a company called Sahed Development, S-E-H-E-D, or the Sahed Development Corporation, sorry. Well, they started fixing the area up, and in 1981, Brightleaf Square opened. Now, these tobacco warehouses, they were, they were split up into smaller quadrants, and so when they opened it up on the, the lower floors, they designed it to have uh, retail stores and uh, a restaurant. And then office space in the upper areas or upper floors, I'm sorry. So the the, the places up top were going to be office. The bottom was going to be stores and a restaurant. Now, Brightleaf Square has changed the way it looks over the years. But uh, it's still uh, a really cool spot today. They have a restaurant and several stores. And if you ever get to walk through that area now, there's a, a really pretty water tower they painted. And they have uh, like colored lights going along a, a man-made stream there. Um I'm not describing it very well, but I'll see if I can't post some pictures of it. So check the show notes. But uh, they've really made it into a, a really cool spot to hang out after the ball games. If you ever get to go see one, they also have the uh, Durham Performing Arts Center there, where you can see plays and stuff. I've been to that too, and that's right right across the way from the the ballpark. So uh, either way, if you're in the, uh, that part of Durham, the, the Brightleaf Square area, definitely go check that out. And that is the end of my tobacco episode. I wish I had a more poetic name than tobacco, but I don't. But I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, if you're new here, I hope you come back. And if you're old here, I hope you continue to grow old with me. Oh, that sounded way more mushy than I wanted to be. Anyway, the social media I talked about at the beginning. Uh, I'm on Facebook at the NC Everything Podcast. I'm on Instagram at the underscore NC underscore everything underscore podcast. And I'm on Twitter, and my Twitter handle name is at EverythingNC. Um, again, I'm not doing a whole lot on there right now, but um, if you really want to follow me, just uh, episodes come out every Saturday morning, somewhere around 2 a.m. before everybody wakes up, kind of like Santa Claus like that. I'll drop them off while you're asleep. Um, don't rely heavily on the social media, but I do want to get back in there and, and do that. And don't forget to visit my website if you hadn't already. That's www.thencevertingpodcast.com. Check out my old episodes, listen to your favorites over and over again if that is a thing, and reach out and contact me. Say, hey, you love me, or hey, you hate me, or give me a suggestion for an episode. I love hearing from you. Nick, your episode's going to be next week, so hang in there, and I'll talk to y'all next time. The music in this episode comes from archesaudio.com and freepd.com. <laughs>